Um, so yeah, the Apostles' Creed, the reason we're here looking at what God's Word tells us, what we are, what we are trying to get out of it for today, uh, for ourselves, as we go out into community. And um, as I thought about what is it, where are we, where are we looking to go post-Easter, I say, the Apostles' Creed. We say it most weeks, do we know what we're saying? Yeah, we get the words, we understand maybe the English, but do we really know what it is that the creed is trying to convey to us? Um, if you look at Luther's catechism, he breaks it into three sections. And the kind of three sections that we looked at on Easter as we affir- reaffirmed our baptism uh, vows. Yeah, Looking at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he, and he breaks them down. You can read about that yourself. But we're going to go much deeper than three pieces. And we're going to be, I don't know, 12, 13, maybe 14 by the time we finish, looking at each individual, what I would call, clause. And today we start with God, the Father Almighty. Four words. We're going to look at those four words over the next however many minutes I get to talk for, which, you know, if someone wants to tie me, that's fine, but it's not going to slow me down. It's not going to make me finish early. I've got to make sure Fern has enough time to teach the kids what she needs to teach the kids today. So you've got me for as long as it takes. Um, But before we get into those four words, I do want to just look at what is the importance of the creed? Why do we have a creed? And you might have heard some people say, we need no creed but the Bible. Only have the Bible as your creed. And, and, And that's all well and good, but then it gets rid of the beauty and the, the history behind this, if you will, summarized message of Scripture. That's what the creed is, a summarized message of Scripture. See, the point of the creeds, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, which we're looking at, whether it's the, the Nicene Creed, the, the Athanasian Creed, it's to maintain biblical Christianity. That's its point. It's to give you, in a nutshell, what the faith is. Um, Brief, to the point, articles of faith. See, the Apostles' Creed, it it doesn't include everything that we might believe, but it it doesn't include anything that we shouldn't believe. It's kind of like the bare minimum. If you're going to profess to have faith in Christ, to be a disciple, a Christian, a follower, uh, then you've got to agree to everything that's in the Apostles' Creed. And if there's anything that you struggle to agree with in the Apostles' Creed, then we need to talk and we can go through that because you're not living into a Christian faith if you aren't really professing the faith of the, of the Apostles' Creed as it's laid out. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next however many weeks. We're going to be breaking it all down and we're going to come at it. Because the Creed is... A foundation of orthodoxy, to put it in, in, in a way, some words that we've been using lately, orthodoxy. It, it provides core doctrine for us. It, it gives us um, fundamental points of scripture that we can draw on and remember and help to lead us in our life. It prepares us to be a faithful witness. Something Paul was talking about there, being a faithful witness even with a G.I. Joe character. Right? How do we use what we've got in our life 
to be a faithful witness. What prepares us for that? Well, the creed is one of those tools that we have. Because uh, it, it gives us those core doctrines, you know. Um, and doctrine is important for many reasons. But, but simply, if we define doctrine, um, we're looking at... It's what the church believes, teaches, and confesses on the basis of God's word. Okay? So if it's not on the basis of God's word, it's a false doctrine. But it's on the basis of God's word and we're looking at it, we're believing it, we're living into it, we're teaching it, and we're, we're confessing it, then it's a doctrine we need to keep. And secondly, because if, if we keep it, we adhere to God's word, to, to the doctrines that, that have been put in place, we prevent ourselves from slipping into a position of opposing God. And sadly today, there's many places, even in churches, we'll see unorthodox belief. We'll see practice that slips into disobeying and even opposing God. But that's nothing new. That's been around for centuries that it's happened, that it's gone on. Um, but just so happens right now at this moment in time, it's being less confronted, it's being more accepted. But if history's taught us anything, history has taught us that false teaching, unorthodox practice, is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to us as God's people. Because the Apostles' Creed, it, it's truth. And if we hold it, we hold truth. And really, the Apostles' Creed is the thing that should unite church because of its truth. And as we are united, I'm talking about being united on the truth, not at the expense of truth. And that's what happens a lot of the times today. People drop bits that they would keep or maybe think so that they can have unity with others. And then we end up with this mismatch. And, and, and we're not really united in truth. And that's what the Apostles' Creed gives us, that thing, to stand on. Remember, anyone who professes to be a Christian has got to agree with the entirety of the Apostles' Creed. And so let's jump into looking at the Creed. And it starts with these words, I believe. Okay? But, but it, that's not, I believe here and now. Okay, we've got three times it says, I believe. I believe at the beginning, then there's a, I believe midway through, and there's an I believe toward the end, talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then in, in, into the different aspects that we, we, we bracket in there, and, and looking at the church, and, and, and re resurrection, and, and, and belief in baptism. And this I believe is, I choose to believe. I, I, I choose to live into, to continue believing in. Um, and I think at this point of, of marriage vows, whenever I'm celebrating a, uh, marriage with people and, and I kind of get to officiate a, a, a ceremony, I always ask the bride and the groom, will you take to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife? And I ask, will you? Because that's a promise to keep doing it. Whereas some people and some ceremonies, I've been say, say, do you? Well, do you is a here and now. That's not a promise for 50 years' time. But will you is. And that's, kind of the, the, that's the kind of emphasis we place on I believe. 
It's I believe into. I'm living into. I'm going to keep doing it because it, it, it gets me connected with God. It, I'm, I'm believing to step into the truths of God, to, to see all that he has revealed to me. And, and I'm going to choose to, to commit to a relationship of trust and union with him. Yeah, I believe. It means all of that. It's not just to stand up and say for today. Because God invites us to be part of his family. And this is our response to say, I believe. I'm going to step into that. I'm going to, I'm going to declare it. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to, I'm going to take that invitation. And I'm going to share that invitation to others so they too can become part of the family. Not just for today. It's through the good times and the bad times, the difficult times and the easy times. I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to believe. And so as we believe into God, this, this state that comes upon us, we're choosing to, to be ushered, to be ushered into a, a life of worship, uh, into a, a life of, of, of accepting Acknowledging, confessing the one true God. But that's not what happens today in the world. See, because we have, across churches, we have differing belief systems. Some even going against um, what the Apostles' Creed states. What we state that we believe. And... I'm honest, that creates a bit of a mess. And when you add into that mix all of the other religions and all of the other gods that are created by people today, it just heats that mess up. And a heated mess is like a mess, but just messier because it bubbles over. Um, but we don't believe that. We don't believe in all these other gods. We believe in God the Father Almighty. And we've got to get that right. Because if we don't get this right, we get everything else wrong. Yeah, We're not looking at little G gods that are scattered throughout the world. We're not looking at you know, mini idols that we create by ourselves. We're talking about the one true God. And it makes me at this point think of... Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis. And at the moment, I'm reading these books with my kids. And I don't know how many of you have, have done reading books with kids, but they have so many questions. Like, um, what did that mean? Or, or what's happening? Or is that the same person from the last book? And I'm like, I, 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 when, when, when they're both at it, I just close the book. I'm like, why don't we find out together? <laughs> let's, let's read the page and find out together. And it's like, they're like, but you know already. I'm like, I don't want to spoil it for you. But they, they kind of want the answer, but they don't want the spoiler alert. But I'm going to give you a spoiler alert because we're in the last book. Some of you might not agree with me that it's the last book because I know there's different opinions on that. But we're reading The Last Battle. And um, in the last battle, the, enemy god, the enemy's god, Tash, is 
ushered into Narnia. He's kind of thought into place, uh, brought into being. And many people who don't believe Tash is real, many people who don't believe Aslan is real, and, and they even come up with, a, oh, they're the same person. They're the same thing. And we call them Tashlan because we'll mix the two together. And, and it's just not right. Because in the book of Narnia, there's only one Aslan. Okay, there might be pretenders to be Aslan. And there might be other, other gods which are worshipped by, by the neighboring countries. But there's only one Aslan. And he's the son of the emperor of the sea. That's his title. And today, in the world where we live, we've got this thing, same thing going on. There's only one God. And yet, all these other creations are about. All these other little G-gods. But there's only one true God. He's the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, all in one. True unity is found in the Trinity. And so, as we create little G gods today, idols, once you've given power to it, it's very hard to get that power back. You give him authority or her authority or whatever you want to call it, authority over you, it's very hard to then take that back. And in the last battle, people find that when it comes to Tash or Tashlan or whatever they're going on about. And we've just got to be careful. We've got to stick to the truths that are here in the Apostles' Creed that we state and we believe in Father Almighty. Okay? Not any ordinary God, as a, a survey in England. It was like, you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Okay, what kind of God do you believe in? Oh, just some ordinary God with some answers. Ordinary God. The two words shouldn't fit together. When we talk about Father God Almighty, there's no ordinary aspect to that at all. It's extraordinary. And next week we're going to look in some of those extraordinary characteristics of creation. When we look at him as maker of the universe, of all that is seen and unseen, as the Nicene Creed puts it. But before we get on to that, we've got to look at this thing, this character of God that he's described to himself, that he's revealed to himself, almighty. Because if we don't get the basics right, everything else is going to be wrong. So we've got to start at the beginning, and we've got to get that right. We've got to nail it. Because using a music reference, if we start playing the tune wrong, then the song's not going to sound like the composer wanted it to. And just the other day, I was talking to a group of kids who were telling me all about the movies God's Not Dead. Yeah? And, and I'd say they're worth a watch, and these kids would tell you they're definitely worth a watch. Um, they really loved the movies. I haven't seen all of them yet, and they were telling me all about the ones I haven't seen. Um, but God's not dead. But the world today wants to tell us God is dead. Or at least, if he's not dead, he's become irrelevant. That he's now meaningless. 
but he's not dead. The song carries on. To, he says, he's not dead. He's truly alive. And we're in the season of Easter right now. Right? Easter lasts for another six weeks after today. You know, it's, it's, it's like he is alive. He's not dead. Even though the world wants to tell us he is. Even though the world wants to tell us that we need to rethink God. We need to reframe our belief because we're not believing in something that really is relevant anymore so we've got to change it so that it becomes relevant. That just doesn't make sense to me. And it's sad that God has become meaningless to the point where not only is he meaningless to some people that we might meet in the street, but he's become meaningless to theologians. He's become dead to people who are teaching in seminaries. The new teachers of the faith, the new ministers of faith are being taught by people who don't believe God is real. They don't believe God exists. They don't believe God created the world. They don't believe the facts of the Nicene Creed as the basis of our faith. And that to me is kind of a bit stupid that we've got these people in place. It doesn't add up. I remember a few years before I moved to the States, there was a minister in England who was like, I don't believe in this stuff. But I'm willing to stay in the job because I can see how much it comforts other people. Let's just say he didn't keep his job and he was asked to leave the church. Rightly so. It, it doesn't make sense. It, it, it kind of... And, and, and theologians, calling themselves theologians, not believing in God, what does a theologian do? What is, what is the point? We're all theologians to some degree, but a theologian studies God. So if you don't believe God exists, what are you studying? You, you can't be studying anything, and so therefore, how can you even call yourself a theologian if you're studying something that doesn't exist? You're not studying God. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. We know God exists because why he has revealed himself to us through time and in the word. His word. Through scripture, we get to meet God. We get to relate to him. It tells us a whole lot about ourselves, a whole lot about him, and a whole lot about relationship. See, we get this wrong, everything falls to pot. It just doesn't work. And that brings me back to the idea of doctrine. We've got to be able to identify truth so that we know it when it hits us in the face. And so we know when not truth hits us in the face and we can call it what it is. Because the creed stands up to the test of Scripture. There is nothing in it which is not in Scripture. So when someone says, the only creed we need is the Bible, I'm not disagreeing with them that that's truth. That's a great way to go, but hey, let's take this summary, which is from the Bible. It's been tested. It's true. Let's run with it. It's a lot easier to remember the Apostles' Creed than it is the 66 books of the Bible. And it gives you the foundation. But yet the creed, the faith that it, that it, that it, it professes is coming under Attack. It is coming under attack from people today who want to use things like speculation as a model 
of theology. It's coming under attack from people who, like I've said, are teaching the next generation of ministers. It's coming under attack by people who want to um, create a rereading of Scripture. They want to reframe it so that it says what it doesn't to back up what is now a worldly view that they accept over and above Scripture. And it, in doing that, they're just creating a new identity for God. And that's not possible. It's not possible to create a new identity for God. It's only possible to create a new God. And in the time left this morning, I'm going to go to a few passages of Scripture, and we're going to talk about how the fatherhood of God is, is shown to us in Scripture, how we can really get behind this as an idea long before um, Jesus came to the earth, God was known as Father. We knew he has this, this almighty nature, this, this superiority over all things, as well as a loving, caring nature whereby, as we saw in the, in the series we did on the Lord's Prayer, and we get to call him Father out of that because he has given up personal privacy so that we get to really have this enormous privilege. Yeah? He doesn't care about the privacy aspect of his character. He's revealed it to us, and he's given us this enormous privilege. We get to call him Father. <clears throat> and God, like I said, long before Jesus came to earth, was Father. Okay? And we see that when we look at a different passage of Scripture, and I'm going to go to the first one today, is Deuteronomy 3, uh, verse 26. Um, it spells it out for us. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and senseless people? Is not he your Father who created you? This is what people were told long before Jesus came. He is your Father. God is your Father who created you. He made you and He established you. He clearly referenced again in the, uh, the story of the Exodus. Moses, um, burning bush, all goes on. And then Moses is being equipped to go to Pharaoh. And God gives him the story of what's going to happen long before it happens. And we're in uh, chapter 4 of Exodus, verses 22, starting around 22. Um, maybe, yeah, 21, 22 will start. And he tells Moses what's going to happen when Moses meets with Pharaoh. And he says, The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. As a reference to fatherhood right there, isn't it? Israel is my firstborn son. I am Israel's father. That's what God is saying. But there's many other acts as well throughout Scripture that point to God's fatherly nature. You've got the, the story of Abraham, right? Right? Genesis 12, 
God is the father of Abraham, and Abraham's going to become the father of a nation with descendants greater than the stars in the sky. And then you've got Abraham's son, Isaac. And Abraham has passed on to Isaac this faith, and God has, has, has started this covenant with Isaac. He's continuing that covenant he had with Abraham. And then it goes on again into Joseph. Okay, and Joseph is the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac. And Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And he goes off to Egypt, and then the whole family follow him, and they're multiplied. And then they're made into a nation of which God is the father, where Moses has come to then bring them out into the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fatherly love, again and again being exhibited. He is both the creator and the protector of Israel as a father. And that leads us into other aspects of the Old Testament. Isaiah tells you in chapter 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up. And I will say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and my daughters to me. That's my paraphrase. Babylonian exile. People spread. And God's saying, come back. You're my sons and my daughters. Don't know about you, but it takes a father to have sons and daughters. Okay, right through the Old Testament, we have this picture of God as Father. It comes up again in Jeremiah 3.14 when he, he, <clears throat> he references the return of backsliding children. I was once a backsliding child. You know, anyone who's been a child knows they probably were as well. Anyone who's had a child knows that children are really good at being them. All right? It just comes down, and Malachi mentions it, as do, all the, as do many of the prophets. The, the whole diet, whether it's explicit or it's implicit, God is Father. And then we step into the New Testament, and the complete revelation of God as Father comes to us through the incarnation, through Jesus as his Son. And Jesus says in, in John 6, verse 38, he says, I have come to do the will of the Father. Okay, so he, he explicitly references God as Father. And then he says again in, in John 10, 30, that the Father and I are one. And we'll look at it a little bit later in this series, that the profession of faith in the, in the Son and, and in the Spirit, <clears throat> how important it is because to pause right now is by stating belief in the Father, we are stating belief in the Son and the Spirit. Because the Trinity is perfect unity. And we're saying, if we believe in the Father, and we're starting that profession, we are stating, well, that's the Trinitarian belief. So there's Son and Spirit are going to follow that. But back to concentrating specifically on the Father today as we are in God the Father Almighty. 
I might feel like I'm repeating myself. You might say, he said that already. But we've got to get it. Everyone who has faith, who professes to have faith, has got to get this. If you don't get this right, everything else in the creed that we're going to look at isn't going to be understood, isn't going to be felt, isn't going to be recognized. And then there isn't actually going to be a faith for you to stand on. It comes down again to that, that poor theology that is, is banding around where people are trying to reinvent God. You can't reinvent God. You can only invent another God, a different God. Um, and it goes against the doctrine of the fatherhood of God. It misrepresents that whole, um, that whole idea. And if I'm honest, problem started, I think, in the 19th century with liberal theology. And the idea that um, there was only two doctrines they'd stand by. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Well, okay, what they would say is, God is father to everybody. And that's not truth. That isn't truth. God is not father to everybody. Yes, he is the creator. Yes, he, he has uh, a desire to protect and to care for, but he does not have a saving relationship with everybody. To be part of the family, to be able to call him father, you have to submit to him. He will only be your father. He is only your father if you submit to him. And scripture tells us that very clearly. Paul is really good at pointing out these truths. And he says in, um, in his letter to, to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 1, uh, verses 3 and on, he goes, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children. Okay, you can only be a child of God if you are in Christ. So you can only call him father if you are in Christ. So if you don't recognize Christ, you can't call him father. And then he goes on again in Galatians chapter 4. And, and, he, and he says, chapter 4 of Galatians 4. But, but when the fullness of time has come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. Yeah, we are adopted as a child through our relationship with Christ, who was born under the law, so that we may be redeemed and no longer under the law. So this whole liberal theology of everybody gets to call God Father, you know, it, it's the, the only word that comes to mind that I can say in church is tosh. Utter tosh. It, 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 rubbish. Okay, God is our Father. As we are his children because we are in Christ. Believing in God the Father Almighty. And as we step into believing in God the Father Almighty, another thing we really need to do is stick to the language of Scripture as revealed to us what is God's name. How do we refer to him? We use the word he, not because he is masculine, but because of the personal relationship that we have with him. And that's how he revealed himself, because that's how he wanted to be known. 
And I, I kind of get a bit annoyed with the, the new age names for God that people try to invent and come up with. You know, Mother God is one that, that I really can't get my head around. But even within our own denomination, we have people twisting words to try and fit a, a new age thinking. And uh, I don't remember, a couple of years ago, I think it was, someone prayed at Congress and ended the prayer with, our men and our woman. And that just makes no sense whatsoever. But they were just trying to use this, oh, I've got to be equal. If I say man, I've got to say woman. And, and it just doesn't make sense. And, and in the PCA, no, the PCA, the PCUSA, um, in one of their conferences, they, they described the triune God as compassionate mother, beloved child, and life-giving womb. That's not the truth. I just lost my batteries, did I? No, it came back. Okay, that's not, that's not the trinity of Scripture. That's some made-up God. That's an idol that someone has created. And if we're going to talk about God in those terms, then we might as well throw Scripture out and just come up with a whole new God, which is what people are suggesting we should do anyway. Because God is no longer relevant, according to many. It all comes back right full circle to what I spoke of earlier. Of that, trying to, yeah, to recreate God, to reimagine God. We've got to stop allowing it to come into the church from outside of the church. And we've got to see where other churches are doing it. We've got to talk truth to them. We're in a battlefield where God is relevant but where people want us to look past that and see only irrelevance or not being able to connect because he's an ancient God and he belongs in ancient times. Instead, instead of trying to create God in our image, we need to live into the fact that we were created in his We need to live into, believe into, that God is the Father Almighty. And as we come into next week, creator of heaven and earth. Because to misunderstand, to misunderstand that, to get off on the wrong foot, to not start in the right place, is only, is only going to mess with everything else. And we're never going to get to live into knowing God fully if we get that very one basic thing wrong. So let's live into belief in Father God Almighty. His superiority, his authority over our lives. And let's stick with it and not try to change it. Let's just stick with it. I just want to pray for you all. Father, we... We come knowing you have revealed yourself to us in your word, in scripture, and we give thanks for that. We give thanks for every day us getting to know you more, getting to know ourselves more and how we fit together and where we don't 
fit because of our own misgiving, because of our own frailties and failings. We come in repentance. We ask you to instill in us the courage and the desire to press on, to keep running the race, not to go off track, but to stick to your truth. And we give you so much thanks for the Apostles' Creed and all of those who have put into that blood and sweat to get that right, to make it reveal who you are as a true testament of a summary of your scripture, of your word, of your words to us. So Lord, help us understand. Help us believe. As we say, even as the centurion did, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let us be on that journey, moving to belief in all areas of our life. As we give to you, Father Almighty. Amen.